0: Thank you for that worship this morning church. You sound really good. I also want to say a word of thanks to our accompanist, our team that's been working so hard over the course of the last seven months, eight months, doing two worship services. People ask, you know, what it's like for me to preach two sermons, preach twice on Sunday, and it is a challenge. It's a challenge I've done before, so it's not an abnormal thing for me, but it's certainly a an extra work for a lot of these men and women who've been serving us so faithfully in music every single Sunday, just about. So, thank you guys for, for your, your help with that. Um, I told the first service, uh, I, I went to play golf yesterday with uh, one of our church members, Matt Hopper, and um, uh, played really poorly, but that's nothing, not really anything you care about. But, um, I, Joe, I have come to the conclusion. That there's a direct relationship between how many swings I take with a golf club and how bad my back hurts the next morning. And uh, and so based on that, I I had a really bad day yesterday, Um, swung a whole lot and hit the ball all over the place. So uh, if I stand a little bit more on, lean a little bit more on the pulpit this morning, you'll know uh, why that is. Maybe you heard this story, I don't know, but there's a story of these uh, three boys who were playing on the schoolyard playground one day, and they began to do like little boys do. They began to compare who had the best dad. You ever did that when you were growing up? You know, my dad can beat up your dad, my dad's better than your dad, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think my kids have ever done that. But anyway, um, uh, they said, uh, you know, uh, uh, my dad's better than your dad, and so the first boy said, well... My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, and he calls it a poem, and they gave him $50 for that. The second boy said, well, that's nothing. He said, my dad scribbled a few words on a piece of paper one night, and called it a song, and they gave him $500. third boy just kind of chuckled and puffed out his chest, and he said, well, I got you both beat. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, and he calls it a sermon, and it takes four guys every week to take up all the money something. So hopefully that will that will result today in a very bountiful offering. But I will leave that up to you and the Holy Spirit. If you have a copy of the Bible, I open it, ask you to open up today to Colossians chapter three, verses 18 through 21. As we're going to look at the subject of the Christ-centered home, we'll read these verses in just a moment. But before we do. We're getting close to the end of the book of Colossians and I want us to see this book as a whole. I've had very a lot of people that have said to me, really appreciate these sermons in Colossians, never saw some of these things before in the book of Colossians, really like how you're tying all these things together. And that's because it's really good when we preach through God's word sequentially and we're able to see God's word as it was written and given to the original readers of the word. And we see the wholeness of the Word of God. And as we've been journeying through the book of Colossians, we've been looking at the theme of Christ over all or the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. When we say Christ is over all, we're talking about His supremacy, that Christ is supreme over all creation. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that, that He is the firstborn over all creation. It also tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is supreme over all the church. And we've seen over the course of the last few weeks that the supremacy of Jesus Christ calls us as Christians to reject shallow and empty religious rituals. It calls us to trust in Jesus for our righteousness, not to trust in just religious works or religious stuff to try to make us righteous because religious stuff can't can't bring about the righteousness that Jesus does. We've... We've seen how the supremacy of Jesus in Colossians chapter 3 calls us to set our hearts and our minds and our affections on things above, on on heavenly things, on heavenly truths where Christ is. We saw in Colossians chapter 3 verses 5 through 11 that, that the supremacy of Jesus calls us to put to death the deeds of the sinful flesh. And then we saw last week that the supremacy of Jesus calls us to put on the character traits of Jesus. And so in the final two messages that we will have this week and next week, we're now going to turn to more of the practical aspects of what it means to to set our hearts and minds on things that are above and how it affects our relationships with those around us. Today we're going to talk about how the gospel and the supremacy of Jesus affects our relationships in the home. And next week we're going to talk about how the gospel and the supremacy of Jesus affects our relationships in the greater culture. (coughs) And the reason for this is because Paul words these instructions to to us as followers of Jesus regarding the home and regarding the culture. He gives them to us in the context of Colossians chapter 3 for a reason. And the reason is that Paul wants us to see that the gospel, that the message of who Christ is, is the lens by which we are going to accurately see all of our lives. That we're to to measure our lives through the lens of the gospel. See, the gospel is not just a, a message that we believe that saves us, but the gospel is the filter that completely changes how we see our lives. Tim Keller says, We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. We don't just... We don't just hear the gospel and then we go, okay, I got that, then we moved on to more advanced truths. No, the gospel is the first step. He says the gospel is not just the first step in a stairway of truths, but rather the gospel is like the hub in a wheel of truth. All truth revolves around who Jesus is. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but it's the A to Z of Christianity, Keller says. And so this whole life approach to Understanding and applying the gospel extends to every area of our life, especially to the area of the home. I've preached on Colossians chapter 3 verses 18 through 21 several times. And it's very easy to slice out these four verses and to make a very good instructional sermon on the roles within the family. But we must take note that Paul's instructions in verses 18 through 21 flow directly from his instructions in verses 1 through 17. That that these instructions of the roles within the family flow from us as followers of Jesus, setting our hearts and minds on things that are above, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and putting on the character traits of Christ. And then we see this directly applied within the four walls of our home. And so Paul begins to turn our attention to the responsibility we have as objects of the saving love of Jesus Christ to work out that love in our personal relationships. And so I want us to read verses 18 through 21, but before we do, and these are not on the screen, and I want us, because we can't understand verses 18 through 21 until we first understand verses 1 through 4. So just by way of reminder, I want us to go back and read the first four verses before we look at verse 18. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says if then you have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if you just pause if you remember a few weeks ago we said all of humanity according to Paul can be divided into two classifications of people. People who are dead in their trespasses and sins, people who are raised with Christ. So only two classifications of humanity. Those who are lost, those who have been saved by Christ. Those who are still dead in their trespasses Those who've been raised to new life with Jesus. So if you, Christians, have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Now verse 2, set your mind on things that are above. Focus your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your, your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is that union with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. In light of that, turn to verse 18. In light of that, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We're going to break these down in practical application in a second, but I want us to see as we start this instruction on the Christ-centered home that the home is the soil in which the gospel of Jesus Christ grows. And that few things more vividly display both our understanding and our application of the gospel better than our relationships with those under the same roof as us. And it's interesting because as as someone who's been in ministry for a long time, for three decades... I mean, I've seen people who claim faith in Jesus, who claim to have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who who truly believe the Word of God, but yet when it comes to the way they relate to their spouses or where it comes to the way that they relate to their parents or to their children, there's a disconnect there. And it's interesting because you really can't truly know Christ in all of His fullness and it not have some effect on the way that you relate to those in your family. See, the home is the soil in which the gospel grows. And in the home, we see everything about the gospel on perfect display all the time. What do I mean by that? Well, in the home we see the the gospel of creation. We see the divine gift of procreation given to men and women who are given the honor of bringing new life into the world. The gospel tells us about a God who is creator and a God who has chosen to create new life through through the, through the sexual union of a husband and a wife, we see the divine gift of procreation. We see in the home this message of unconditional love as mother and father direct their attention and their affection into nurturing and providing for and protecting these new lives that are now a part of them. In the home, we see the message of toil and struggle. We see fallenness in our home. Because as fallen human sinners live in close proximity to one another, the stain of sin creates conflict and hurt and destruction and deceit and pain between family members. So not only do we see the creation displayed in the home, but we see the reality of the fall in the home, don't we? Nowhere do you see more the reality of the fall than in the way that you relate to those in your home. Because when you put sinners who have fallen sinful natures in the same proximity to each other all the time you're going to have disillusionment you're going to have unmet expectations you're going to have conflict you're going to have pain but in the home we also see Christian mothers and fathers who have the divine calling to be agents of the gospel message to their children And that God has designed the Christian home to be a place where God's laws and God's word and God's grace are all to be passed down. And we see in the home the opportunity for grace and mercy to be put on display continually as sinful parents and sinful children must learn to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to one another and learn to display the very same saving, sanctifying, and divine grace that was extended to us on the cross of Christ. Before we get into the text of the message, we need to understand that Satan has launched and led a full-fledged assault on the institution of the family. And not just in our culture in recent decades, but since the fall of man. Since Genesis chapter 3, Satan has been going hard, full-fledged, after the home. Because the home, which is to be a place where fallen sinners live in close proximity to one another has been a primary spiritual battleground for thousands of years. And it has disastrous results. In some cultures, like some of our cultures in Africa where we work with four corners, one of the ways we see the fracturedness of the home is that the creation plan of God, which is told us in Genesis chapter 2 that the home is to be a place Where one man and one woman live in a covenant of marriage, that system has been replaced by a patriarchal system where women have been treated as property to be owned and who serves the wishes of the man. And it creates within some cultures in our world an abusive system as men treat women as property, sometimes taking for themselves multiple wives completely destroying the biblical picture of the family. In our our culture that we work with in Uganda, we have many men in our church before they became followers of Jesus who were part of this patriarchal system who now have multiple wives to whom they must attend who struggle with understanding now God's word in light of their sin and their mistakes and how they lead their family. So you have this abusive patriarchal system on one hand, but then on the other side of the spectrum, you have liberal culture that has elevated the theories of egalitarianism to such a point where all the unique and distinctively biblical roles in the family are blurred and they're dumbed down. In egalitarianism, there's an overemphasis on equality and sameness so that there's no difference between men and women other than the obvious biological gender differences sometimes. And even those can be questioned And the things that God has specifically given to men and women that were designed to create healthy biblical homes, those things are now destroyed and marred. Gender roles in the home have become blurred in our culture. Men are left in a state of confusion about what does it mean to be a man in the home now? Does it mean to be a man that you're to be a tough and rugged warrior? Or does it mean you're to be a tender, sensitive man who's in touch with his feelings? We don't know, men don't know what to be. And women don't know what to look for in a husband. Because there's been this this dumbing down on the distinct roles of men and women. And the battle for the family has been seen in our our culture in the last hundred plus years in both the rampant rise of divorce and cohabitation in our world, instead of the home being a place where one man and one woman, though both fallen sinners, live out the gospel in the context of a one-flesh marriage, now in our culture, we have no-fault divorce, where people decide to cut and run instead of confess and forgive sin. And we have skyrocketing instances of couples who choose to live together in cohabitation deciding that they want the perks of relationship without the commitments of marriage. We've even reached the point where the institution, the family within our own culture, has now been left up to debate by courts of men who attempt to redefine what God already defined in Genesis chapter 2. And I've long said over the last 10 years or so that that while we see this battle played out all the time in our court system, we as created fallen people do not have the right to redefine what God has already clearly defined. The result is that in our culture, a family has now been seen as nothing more than a place where people love each other. and the incubator of the gospel has been lost. And the bottom line is, when we define and we live out the family unit in the way that God has designed, it works. And when we take the family unit outside the divine boundaries of the Word of God, it doesn't work as well, and the result is chaos and conflict. When we do family God's way, it works. When we do family our way, it doesn't. And so with that in mind, let's talk about the roles of the Christ-centered family. And there are four unique roles that he talks about here under the understanding of the family. And the first of those roles is the role of the wife. And that role is simply that of holy submission. In verse 18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now there is no clear reason why Paul begins his instructions to the wife. There's nothing functionally, as, most of the time when you see instructions given in scripture, most of the time, and even like when I do weddings, most of the time I start with the husband and his vows before I start with the wife because the husband is to be the spiritual leader. The only reason is that that, that Paul would start with wives is because his instructions for holy submission on the part of the wife flows out of God's specific instructions to husbands that we will look at in just a second. And God's instructions here to wives are to submit to the godly leadership of their husbands. Let me say that again. Wives, God's instructions is that you are to submit to the godly leadership of your husband. That presupposes godly leadership. The parallel to this passage in Colossians 3 is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 4. And in the Ephesians passage, Paul says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, the wife's submission to her husband flows from and is a picture of the wife's loving submission to Jesus as Lord. Wives submit to your husbands as you submit to the Lord. Now, Anytime a preacher stands in a pulpit and starts talking about wives and submission, it always creates a little bit of tension in our culture. And that is because we have a major misunderstanding of what is biblical submission in contemporary American culture today. Millions of people see these words. It even came up in the last election cycle four years ago that some candidates brought up that the Christian idea of submission, and they 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 talked about it as though it was some form of patriarchal enslavement system that we as Christians believe. Millions of people see these words, these instructions, wives, submit to your husbands, and immediately what comes to mind is a form of spiritual slavery that diminishes the beauty of women and wants to subject women to ancient forms of household slavery. And so when you say submission... To women in our culture, the image that comes to mind in our fallen culture is you just want to hold women down and tie them into the kitchen and take away all their rights. And that could be no further from the truth. Biblical submission in the Bible is exactly the opposite of the way it's pictured in our culture today. Biblical submission is not forceful enslavement, but it is women willingly submitting to the plan of God. The word submit in the Bible is the word "hupatasso," and it means to willingly place oneself under the authority of another. Let me say that again. It means to willingly place oneself under the authority of another. This word "hupatasso" is the same word used in Luke chapter 2 verse 51 to describe Jesus' submission to His earthly parents. So even though Jesus was the Son of God He willingly submitted himself to God's plan as a child who would obey his earthly parents even though in function he was the Lord over them. He didn't exercise his lordship as the son of God. He willingly placed himself under the authority of Mary and Joseph. It's the same word that's also used of believers in Romans chapter 8 when it says we're to submit to the word of God as Christians. We willingly place ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. In Romans chapter 13, it says we are to submit to governing authorities, meaning that as Christians and as citizens of a country, we willingly submit to the laws of this country. We willingly place ourselves under the authority of. And yet, if a policeman pulls you over for driving over the speed limit, you don't say, oh you're just trying to hold me down and submit me to an ancient patriarchal form of 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 slavery that limits my freedom, right? We don't say that. But we take that same word when it's used of the roles of wives and husbands and we create a picture that is not biblical. Submission in the Bible does not imply inferiority on the part of women. Galatians chapter 3 beautifully affirms that because of the gospel, there is no spiritual difference now between male and female. Both men and women have equal value and equal worth before God. So there is no inferiority. But when women submit, they don't don't become less in, in, in value or worth to men. Submission does not imply slavery, where wives exist to answer the orders of their husbands. The caricature that's often displayed of biblical submission is is people point to things like Archie and Edith Bunker and All in the Family, if you remember that, right? Archie comes in and sits in his chair and barks out orders to Edith and Edith frantically goes to get Archie food and and something while he sits in the chair and, and enjoys being king of his household and Edith is his slave. That's not biblical submission. Submission is also not absolute. In other words, the wife's submission to her husband flows from her ultimate submission to God. But when the husband's leadership forces the wife to do something that clearly violates the word of God, her submission to his leadership ends. Wives are never called to submit to something that is contrary to the word of God. Submission is not absolute in all things. Paul says that the submission of the wife is fitting in the Lord. In other words, it's the right thing to do. It's not always the easiest thing. It may not always be the desired thing, and it may not always be the culturally popular thing, but it's the right thing. It fits the way God has created things. That's the reason why I called it holy submission. Wives... The model for this is the church's submission to Jesus Christ. Wives, women, your model for submission to your husband is the way the church submits to the Lordship of Christ in all things. Paul shows us in Ephesians that when the wife submits to her husband's godly leadership, she portrays the church's submission to the Lord Jesus And we know that when a church rebels against the authority of the Lord or rebels against the word of God, the result in the church is a mess. And likewise, when a woman refuses to submit to the godly leadership of her husband, you have a mess and chaos in the home. So wives, your role is holy submission. Husbands, men, our role is loving leadership. Now, again, you think culturally about those terms and Holy submission sounds so strong. Loving leadership sounds so soft. Guys, before you get the big head with this whole wives submit to your husbands thing, I can see it right now. I can see some of you guys going, hey, hey, honey. Colossians chapter 3. Before you get a big head about wives submit to your husbands, you need to understand that God has placed the hard part of the relationship on us as men. We see in verse 19 that the Bible says that men are to love their wives and that sounds really, really easy, does it? Husbands, love your wives. I got that one. It's like the old guy who, whose wife, after they've been married for about 50 years, just came to him one day and said, you know, you just never tell me that you love me anymore. And he said, well, I told you I loved you on the day we got married and nothing's changed. So, you know, it's, it, that's not what we're talking about here. Paul explains for us what love looks like in Ephesians chapter five when he says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's your standard, guys. The love that you have for your wife is to be equal to in display the love that Jesus has for the church. And this means that we love our wives without conditions. That we love our our wives in such a way that sacrifices are good for the betterment and the sanctification and the growth in christ likeness of our wives. It's a sacrificial kind of love. It goes beyond just saying the words, I love you, from time to time. It means that our primary relationship in our lives is not hunting or playing golf with our buddies or drinking coffee with the boys. But our primary relationship is to pour our lives into loving a woman created in the image of God to her ultimate fulfillment. That's our calling, men. The word here for love is the word agabate, which means sacrifice, willing choice, and surrender. And it's in the present tense in the Greek, which means that it's a continual action. It's not just something that we loved them before and nothing has changed. It's a love that continues to display itself in action, sacrifice, surrender every single day. The husband's love for the wife is to never stop. The love for a husband and a wife is a covenantal love joined into by a man before his wife and before his God. And the same love that existed at the beginning of the marriage is to keep growing stronger and it's to never give in to bitterness, it's to never be harsh with your wife. And the love that a man has for his wife is also seen in that the wife is not just a life mate whom he lives with, but the woman under his home is a sister in the Lord and a spiritual partner in the gospel. That she is the object of a promise that God has made both to her and to God when you stood on a stage very similar to this and you pledged before your wife to love, honor, and cherish her till death do you part. That word love was a sacrificial covenant love and you made that promise to her and you made that promise to God. And God holds his promises seriously, men. Our model, men, for loving leadership... Is Christ's sacrificial love for the church. The model that we are to ascribe to is we are to love our wives as deeply and as visibly as Jesus loves the church and gave himself for her. I put this in your notes God's pattern for husband and wife is not a hierarchy where one rules the other, that is not God's pattern. And anytime you hear that falsely displayed in our culture, you are hearing an abomination. You're hearing a distortion of the scriptures. God's pattern for Christian husbands and wives is not a hierarchy where one rules the other, but a complementary pattern of sacrificial love and mutual submission working towards spiritual oneness. That's God's pattern for marriage equally sacrificial love, mutual submission to one another so that the two become one as God declared in Genesis chapter 2. God's plan for the wife is a holy submission to her godly husband and God's plan for a husband is to be a loving leader who loves his wife sacrificially. And I'm convinced more than ever, after 30 years of ministry, that what a wife needs most in this world is a husband who loves Jesus with all of his heart and a man who would do anything he could to ensure the protection and godliness of his wife. That's what a wife needs more than anything else. And what a husband needs more than anything else is a wife who loves Jesus with all her heart and who joyfully and willingly submits to his leadership in her life and his godly leadership in the home. So husbands, you're to love your wives and to provide loving leadership. Wives, you're to provide holy submission to your husband's godly leadership. Then we see a different relational aspect as we turn to the relationship between children and parents. And the role of children in the home, according to God's Word, is that of godly obedience. Godly obedience. We see this in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything. This verse has become a well-quoted verse within our home over the last 20 years. It's one of those probably, if you'd like to memorize scripture, you probably got this one already. If not, you need to put this bullet in your gun. Colossians chapter 3, children, obey your parents in everything, this pleases the Lord. My children got really sick of hearing that when they were young, trust me. But in this third area of the home, the gospel is given roots in the relationship between children and parents. And while God calls wives to submit to husbands, God's word to children is even more direct. His word to children is obey in everything. Now that presupposes that the leadership of the parents is godly leadership. Obeying in everything does not mean blindful obedience to all things, but blindful obedience to everything according to the Word of God. And it's a principle that's taught throughout all of Scripture. Exodus chapter 20 says, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. God took obedience to parents so seriously that in the Old Testament, striking or cursing a parent was punishable by death. How would that change things right now in our culture? You tell your your child to take out the trash and he blows you up with a bunch of comments and you say, okay, we're calling all the neighbors. Hey, we're having a stoning over at the house in about 10 minutes. Y'all wanna come over and join us? Paul says in Ephesians chapter six that obedience by children is right. It is the role that God has called children to. And all of us know from personal experience and seeing it in the home and in the culture that few things are as ugly as an unruly or disobedient child. Unruly children can be a disgrace to parents. They can weigh down parents emotionally. Some of you right now, as you're thinking about that, you're not just thinking about the kids in your home, you're thinking about yourselves. You're thinking about some of the things that you did when you were growing up. And the fact of the matter is, according to God's Word, a child's obedience to their parents mirrors a child's obedience to God. And a child's disobedience to their parents mirrors their sinful rebellion before God. Children who have obedience problems with their parents have obedience problems to God. And we need to make no mistake, parents, when it comes to our children, the gospel and their hearts are at stake. God has placed authority structures in the world that he has created, and one of those is in the home. And in the home, the parents are the authority who are called by God to lead the home in a Christ-honoring way. Now, sometimes parents don't do that. Oftentimes, parents don't lead the home in a Christ-honoring way. And it causes issues when a Christian child is under the the leadership of unchristian, ungodly parents that sometimes they have to disobey their parents in order to obey God. But the practical reality is that in most cases, the the parents are called to lead their home and that they are the authority and the children are to obey. Too often times, parents try to win the approval of their kids, By trying to be their friend when God has not called us to be their friend, He's called us to be their parents and to shape them and plant the gospel and to plant fear and respect for God in their lives. And you can't do that when you're trying to be their friend. The model for children in the area of obedience is the obedience of Jesus to the Father, the obedience of Jesus to the Father. When children show an obedient heart to their parents, they are modeling the power of the gospel to bring about change and overcome their stubborn, sinful, rebellious hearts. It pleases the Lord, Paul says. And the picture of this is when Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist. If you remember that, the Bible says that Jesus goes to be baptized, and John recognizes that Jesus is Messiah. He recognizes by the nature of Jesus being the Messiah that Jesus has done nothing that he needs to publicly repent for. And John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So John expresses hesitation. He goes, no, 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 no. You don't need to be baptized, Jesus. I need to be baptized by you. You're the Holy One. You've done nothing that should give public demonstration of repentance. And Jesus didn't go to be baptized because he had sinned and he needed to repent. He went to be baptized because the Father commanded him to go be baptized. And Jesus says, this has to be done in accordance with the plan of God to fulfill all the scriptures. And so John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and when Jesus comes up out of the water after being baptized, do you remember what happened next? The Bible says that the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and a loud voice, audible voice over all the people from the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus obeyed the Father in all things. And then finally, we see in the final relationship, the relationship of parents. And the relationship of parents to children is to be a relationship of empowering influence. Empowering influence. Verse 21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The word translated here is fathers. And in this context, Paul is speaking directly to fathers as spiritual heads within their home. Probably because... In no relationship can there be more discouragement many times than in the relationship between fathers and their children. Fathers are often called in positions of authority over their children, and sometimes the way that fathers exercise that authority can be one of discouragement instead of one of empowerment in the lives of their children. But the principle here of not provoking your children to anger and discouragement applies to both parents. Paul uses this word exasperate. And the Greek word is the Greek word ethritzo, which means to stir up, to provoke, or to irritate your children. It's to stir up ungodly emotions in them, anger, resentment, provoking them to anger, discouragement. It primarily speaks to the Weight that parents can put on their kids. You see, when parents do not exercise godly influence on children, the result is that children become discouraged. They begin to lose heart. The phrase refers to children who are continually discouraged and despairing, believing that there's no way to meet their parents' expectations or requirements. That the fathers or the parents in this particular case have, have put so, so, such, a, such a weighty influence upon their children that the children just become discouraged. They give up. They say, I can't please them. I can't, I can't do anything to make them happy. And there are many ways that children can lose heart. Let me just give you a few of them real quickly before we leave. Children can lose heart because parents exasperate their children by overprotection. Never providing any liberty whatsoever to children. Parents in this case have strict rules about everything for the children in an effort to limit what or who influences them. Believing that if we, if we limit the number of influences, we can protect them from sin. But the reality is you can't protect your child from sin because your child is a sinner. And their hearts are going to pursue sin. And so we need to be careful because sometimes overprotection can hinder children and cause them to believe that they don't have the trust of their parents. So we need to be careful about overprotection, about helicopter parenting. Sometimes parents can exasperate their children by showing favoritism, comparing that child to a sibling or another child in such a way that it causes the child to think that the parent doesn't value them as their own person. Be careful about comparison. Some of you know that paying well because you are always being compared to someone else. Sometimes parents can exasperate their children by setting unrealistic goals that the children can't meet, setting expectations so high that there's no reward for fulfilling those expectations. And children struggle with finding much-needed approval from their parents in those kinds of systems. They don't have wings to soar because the goals are so high, they feel like I can't, I can't reach it. No matter what I do, there's never, it's never enough. It's always more and more and more and more. Parents can exasperate their children by failing to show appropriate affection for their children. By not displaying love both verbally and physically. And without proper displays of love, both verbally and physically, sometimes children can begin to feel Unlovable. And sometimes they will seek to find the love that they're not finding from their parents in other sources. So we can exasperate and discourage our children by not showing appropriate affection. We can exasperate our children by constant criticism or constant neglect. By creating a culture where parents find fault in everything. And there's a lack of trust in all things. Or creating an atmosphere of complete indifference to the children altogether. Parents can exasperate children by excessive discipline cultures, constantly disciplining and breaking a child's spirit and negatively shaping their personality. In all these ways, parents, because we are fallen sinners who, who oftentimes parent imperfectly, we can discourage our children. Instead, we are to be agents of empowering influence in our kids' lives. We're not to provoke them to anger. We're to seek them to lead them into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. The model for us as parents is the Father's holy love for the Son. It goes back to that message that the Father said to Jesus in front of everyone else, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Years ago, I heard Robert Lewis say, every man wants to hear three things from his Father. I love you, I'm proud of you, and you are good at I've remembered that message ever since that day because I think every single one of us in here as men and probably those of you as women as, as well, but every single one of us, even if your dad is gone, if somehow or another you could stand before your dad and your dad said, son, I love you, I'm proud of you, and you are really good at. If they hear those messages, it's an empowering influence in their lives. We need to speak those messages into our children's lives. At the end of your notes, it says this the measure of a Christ centered family is not perfection, but growing in grace and Christ likeness. Here's the struggle it's really easy to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, then look at your home and go, oh gosh, we're in trouble. There's no way. I mean, look at our home holy submission, loving leadership, godly obedience, empowering influence. We're like the poster child for everything that's not that. It's really easy to do that in your home, right? But the issue is that the measure of a Christ-centered family is not perfection. We won't be perfect in these things because we are fallen sinners. The measure is growing. The measure is seeking to become more of these things in our homes. No matter how good your family is, every family falls short of the glory of God. Every family needs a constant infusion of the gospel and grace. It's not just enough for families to sit together on pews in the church. It's not going to solve the problems in your home. Daily, we must seek the power of the Holy Spirit in our families. In our homes, we need mamas and daddies and husbands and wives and children and parents who love Jesus with all of their hearts and who will commit to saying, I don't want the world, to define my family anymore. I want the Word of God and the grace of Jesus Christ to define my family. The goal is not perfection, but the goal is growth. Growth in grace and growth in Christ-likeness in the home. Now in closing, let me say this. The key to a Christ-centered home is a Christ-centered heart. The key to a Christ-centered home is a Christ-centered heart. Before Jesus can rule your home, you must first rule your heart. And so I don't want you to leave here today with this laundry list of all these expectations that you're to implement in your home if you've never surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ. <coughs> because you see if you try to implement godly principles when you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, it's just going to it's just not going to work. The key to a Christ-centered home is a Christ-centered heart. And so what we need are daddies who are fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, who've repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus by faith, who've been saved and changed by the gospel. We need mamas who, who trust in Christ by faith, who've repented of their sins. We need children who trust in Christ by faith. You're never going to obey your parents if you're living in disobedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Let's do that today. Let's trust in Jesus with all of our hearts. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes before we leave today? We want to offer an invitation for anyone who is here in the room or anyone who's watching on the screen today who does not know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're in this room and you know that you've never truly trusted Jesus as your Savior, you just kind of live in constant wondering about who God is and what your purpose is and... You feel this constant tension between you and God because you've never truly trusted in Jesus by faith. I invite you today to trust in a a God who accepts you as you are but does not leave you there. And a God who will meet you where you are but will take you to His cross where He forgave you of your sins. And so if you're here today and you need to trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior... And you want to have a Christ-centered heart before you have a Christ-centered home, we want to invite you to do that. If you're watching on the screen and you need to talk to somebody, you can can call that phone number or send a text or you can send an email. If you're here in the building today and you need to talk to somebody, we invite you to to see me or one of our staff members before you leave today. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the power of your word that gives us a very clear picture about what a Christ-centered home looks like. And now I pray, Father, you'd give us the grace and the mercy and the and the and the power of the Spirit to live this out in our lives, God. I pray that you would help those of us who are men here to be surrendered to loving, sacrificial leadership in our home. I pray that you would would help the the ladies here to be committed to holy submission to the godly leadership of their husbands. I pray that you would give children here a spirit of obedience to their parents in all things and that you'd give parents here an empowering influence over their children. And Father, by your Spirit and by your grace, may you fill in the gaps where we are imperfect in each and every one of these situations. May we be people who extend grace and mercy in the faults of others in our home. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you leave this morning, we have just another one-minute video we want to show you about Operation Christmas Child, all right?
1: My name is Bryce Pablo. I'm from Philippines in a small town called Sanchez Mira. When I was four years old, I received a shoebox. box. When I opened my box, I was so happy because I saw toy cars, stuffed toys, toothbrush, and some books. My dog's name is Poppy. My puppy follows me wherever I go. My mother encouraged me to go to church to learn more about God. When I was seven years old, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm so amazed with what God is doing. I saw the transformation of my son. Whenever he comes home, I see him reading the Bible. I shared the gospel to my parents and also to my brothers, and they accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior too. Because of that shoebox, God used me, and now I am discipling other children like me. We do not know God before. Our life was just full of traditions. I'm so grateful for the one who packed the shoebox that changed our life as a whole family.
0: That is a great video that tells you about the power of just one simple gesture. You know, it, it's really cool to see those kinds of stories because it shows us that that this this thing that we do where we go and get a bunch of toys and pencils and paper and put them in a box, and we, we kind of know maybe where the country they go to, but we have no idea what kind of impact it has, that that God can use something like this to change the heart of a child who then uses the message of the gospel to change the heart of his family. And so what, a, what, a, what an incredible story. If you haven't picked up your shoebox for Operation Christmas Child, they're available throughout... The outside there in the foyer down the office complex, you can pick one up. The date to bring them back is November the 15th, so we still got several weeks between now and then. Our goal is 300 boxes. The cost of the shipping is already included in our harvest offering gifts, and so you don't have to pay the cost of the shipping, just the contents that go in there and bring them back. I already saw several people bringing them in today, uh, which is always fun to to watch. So if you haven't got a shoebox, you can get one before you leave. Like I said, there are about four books back there. We might, you know, just kind of, put everybody in a ring and let them battle it out in a battle royal for whoever wants it or whatever. But if we run out of books and you'd like a copy of the David Platt book, let me know and we'll order some more. Uh, Other than that, you are dismissed and we hope that you have an incredible day.